All right, yes, such a massive passage. Settle in, get comfy. All right. All right, my iPad's going to die, so I have a backup. I'm having technical stuff today. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, okay. So, um, first off, um, last week, the back half of the building was overrun by children, and I was told to ask if uh, some of, like, we need like, we need like 20 or 30% of the families to think about, just think about coming to the first service. Just throw it out there and just sending it out. You can send it back. Um, just think about it because um, we, had, we had about 450 people last week, and that's a lot. And uh, we were out of space. So um, we, are, we are working on a plan to create more space in this building um, using the parsonage and the new year and stuff like that. So um, we shall see. But it would help, first off, relieve some of the pressure if maybe like some of the families would be like, hey, we could get up early and go to church and then like have a bigger nap in the afternoon. I don't know. <laughs> I di- I'm an ideas guy. Um, all right, so that's my idea. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to get into this passage today and study it, and let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this place, these people, for what you were doing here with us. So we humbly come and gather together and center our hearts and our minds and our time on you. And we ask that you would encourage us, give us something we need to hear, give us something we need to act upon, something we need to change, give us some hope we didn't have, um, help us to have grace somewhere that we didn't see we needed it before. And uh, speak through me, God, allow me to think clearly and remember the things I've studied and um, speak to all of us. As we take communion this morning, may we uh, fully repent of the things that we need to repent of and, and not hold them back. Do something good with us today. We love you. In your name, amen. All right, so um, let's back up a little bit and let's look at this passage. Um, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Now, he says, for this very reason, which means that he says something before that, and, and because of that, we have this. Now, the thing he said before that is that in Jesus Christ, um, we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. So many things that we want to know, that we want to learn, so many things that, so many ways that we think about our life and we say, well, this isn't healthy. I don't feel healthy in this area. I don't, I'm not. I'm not fulfilled in this area or this area. And, and Peter says, Jesus has offered everything you need. It's there. It's readily available. Um, and then he says, for this very reason, we're going to do this. And he, he, what he does here is he paints this picture of um, sort of steps. You've seen what about Bob? Baby steps to the first thing and to the second thing. Um, and he builds these baby steps. It's, it's interesting for us to take. It, I think it's the first time in my in my sermon, like preaching career, I don't know, that, that, I've, um, that I've really been able to say, step one, this. Step two, this. Because he literally does this. Um, and it's really interesting. If you, if you look back over scriptures, you see a lot about lists. You see, um, you see in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, you see a list of the fruits of the Spirit. Um, in Timothy, there's all kinds of lists in Timothy. There's, um, there's attributes that Christians are to follow. There are, there are lists in, in, um, in Timothy for, um, 
elders and deacons and pastors, the qualifications for them all. Um, all kinds of lists in scriptures. We, we of course, have the, in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, um, another list. The interesting thing about lists in the, old, in, the, in the Old and the New Testament is that they all kind of connect. You have the first thing, and it leads to the second thing, and it leads to the third thing. You, if you skip ahead, it gets very difficult. If you try to get self-control without first getting love and peace and patience, it's very, very difficult. Each one kind of leads to the next, and they're sort of like ladders. They're sort of stepping stones. Um, the ancient rabbis used to write about the, 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 the Ten Commandments and say that, um, well, the Ten Commandments, they work in succession if you keep... These ones, the next one becomes easy. And if you keep that one, the next one becomes easy. And actually say, if you keep all the first nine, you don't even need to worry about the tenth because it'll just happen. You won't, you won't want anyone else's life, their family, their job, their career, another man. You, you won't want any of it. Um, so there is the succession to lists. So why is this all through scriptures? What's with the lists? Um, people generally in the first century and before that and really after that for a while were completely illiterate. They had, they had no way to read. And so he writes these letters and he sends them out and the people couldn't get their own copy. Um, until about 500 years ago, we couldn't get really copies of anything um, until the printing press was invented. And the people had to have some way to memorize the things that they really needed to memorize. And so lists and sort of these stepping stones were the simplest way for the people to grasp uh, the things that they needed to remember. And so... You know, we all, you know, we do this today. We turn things into songs. The fruits of the Spirit is, that's how I remember the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good. And I was, I was, I was in like preschool and I learned this song. Um, books of the Bible, all of it. Um, and so it was this very easy to digest way to remember things. And the fact that they all sort of built off each other. So what Peter does here is he says, so Jesus has offered us everything that has to do with life and godliness. So let's take, te- take steps to attain them. And he says, step one, step two, step three. And he has eight different steps. Um, Unfortunately, I can't get all of those steps today because there's so much. The words he uses are actually really great, and they have a lot of context and a lot of meaning. So we're going to open them up today and look at them. Um, So let's look at the first thing he says in verse five here. uh, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. I'm going to underline each one that we get to uh, with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So faith, supplement your faith with virtue. So all of this starts somewhere. It starts with faith. Now, uh, we're going to open up each word here. The word he uses for faith is the word pistis, and it means to order your life around one idea and to bet your life on it. It's very similar to sort of the word commit. The word commit, when you, when you have faith in something, you commit to it. Uh, the word commit in ancient biblical language is this word that is a nautical phrase. It means like moving things, rolling something over from one boat onto another or from a dock onto a boat. Um, knowing that it's safe there. You can roll it on. It's stepping onto it and believing it. Just saying, yes, I can get, this is not going to sink. It's going to sail. Um, and so to order your life around one idea and to bet your life on it. Now, we all do this. This isn't just about spiritual things. This is about lots of things. If someone finds out that they have some form of cancer, they have some decisions to make. There's all kinds of different forms of treatment. And you are going to make a decision is it chemotherapy, natural treatment? Oh, you're going you're to pick something that is um, what you think is, is what you want to literally bet your life upon. When you buy a car, um, a, a certain percentage of people are 
uh, of the mindset that they are going to buy the car that is the absolute safest that they can for the amount of money that they have. And so they're going to read all the reports, and you are literally going to bet your life on this car that you're going to buy that is going to protect you. When you buy a car seat, mothers do incredible amounts of work for a car seat to know that this car seat is going to protect their baby if they ever get in a wreck. Um, all kinds of things um, that you have faith in all the time. And so it is something that you're ordering your life around. It's one idea, and you're betting, so you're betting your life on it. Now, um, anytime a faith idea is presented, there's really four different ways that people tend to respond. Um, there's four different responses that people take, and, and people kind of um, get in habits of responding to certain things a certain way. So I'm going I'm to look at these four things. The first one here is um, some people are what we would call the skeptic. Now, the skeptic says, I'm not going to commit myself because the demand for sufficient evidence has not yet been met. The skeptic is the one who looks and says, I just don't see enough evidence. Uh, the skeptic doesn't want to be wrong. The skeptic doesn't want to be hurt. The skeptic, above all, doesn't want to appear gullible. Um, skepticism oftentimes is rooted in outward appearance and sort of a social thing that is going on. Something's at play where I, uh, I, don't want, I want people to think I make good decisions. I want to have my mind made up. And when I choose something, I want people to say, um, he chose the right thing based on the best possible evidence that there is. Um, and so the skeptic would rather stand on the sidelines uh, than risk trusting because trusting is very, 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 very risky. Trusting is very risky. Um, we're all skeptics when it comes to some things. Essential oils. Um, it's thrown it out there. Um, we're all skeptics when it comes to something. And we, and we say, uh, I'm not going to, given the choice between a pill and sniffing, I'm going to take the pill. Um, and, and so we all sort of, this is kind of, we all make this decision. We're skeptics about some things. And a lot of people are skeptics about Faith. They think that somewhere out there is this position that somebody has that they have looked at all the evidence and they have made the right decision. The problem is there is no spiritual position, faith position, that is on solid ground. We are all in some ways stepping onto a boat that we're pretty sure is going to float, but very well might sink. We could all be very wrong. Everyone. There's a level of humility. I mean... If I hold something up and I say, hey, I, I, I've, got, I've got 20 bucks in my hand, um, and you believe me, you believe, you have faith that I have 20 bucks in my hand, and then I show it to you, I have just destroyed your faith, because I've showed you, yes, there is 20 bucks in my hand, it's no longer faith, now it's just fact. Faith, the opposite of faith is not doubt, the opposite of faith is fact. Faith requires a little bit of trust, a little bit of mystery. Now, um, the second response people have to faith is um, being cynical, the cynic. The cynic says there's too much that could go wrong. Look at everything that already has. The cynic is the one who looks at everything that has gone wrong in this faith or that faith or this idea or that idea or this political ideology or that political ideology. Um, and they point out and say, see, it's not perfect. See, it's not perfect. And they never really settle on anything. They never vote. They never take sides. They usually have a discernment blog where they rip churches to shreds and pastors to shreds. Um, they leave a lot of Yelp reviews. Um, <laughs> they are afraid of joining something and, and then it going south. And, and if you give a cynic a hug, they're going to check for their wallet when you're done. Um, they're gonna, they're, 
the cynic is the one who wants to put everybody into little camps. Well, these are, there's this subculture, this subculture, this subculture, this subculture. The cynic invented the word hipster um, and uses it to demean everyone, but themselves is not one somehow. Um, everyone, they, they are not part of a subgroup, but they'd have them all defined. A person becomes a cynic when they originally are idealists and they join something, believing it's going to be great, and it hurts them. And they get very, very hurt. And they back off and they say, well, I'm never getting involved in anything like that ever again. And they never do. Um, It takes a lot for a cynic to actually commit to something. And usually they just don't. Um, The next one we have is the rebel. The rebel says, I refuse to entertain the idea. Um, The rebel is typically terrified of things like responsibility. Um, I see this a lot. There's, There's two different types of sort of um, male figures that I know. There's, there's the one who looks at the other and says, oh, look at you with the wife and the kids and the, and the, and the house in the suburbs and the dog and the nine-to-five job and the cars. It's so lame. You're miserable, I can tell. Um, and then he goes back to a house living with 17 guys with a fridge full of PBR and hummus. And it's, <laughs> he hasn't changed his clothes in 12 weeks. And that's... He's basically terrified of any kind of responsibility, anything that, were, that, that would require any type of effort and work and change, which is why the rebel has a very difficult time with faith, because faith requires change. If you find out that Jesus indeed arose from the dead, then all of a sudden his words matter far more than anyone else's, and they are no longer on the same level playing field. And so then there's one more response, the response that most of us have taken. It's, it's the believer. It's belief. Um, the believer says, this looks very hopeful and promising. I will trust that this boat will, will not just float, but will sail. It's, there is a level of, of danger. It's kind of scary. You could easily be wrong. But you say, no, I think, I think this is right. If I'm, if I'm right about this, what could this do for the world? And that's what faith is. Now, um, so predominantly in this room, um, the posture that is taken is the believer, um, but I know there's a good amount of you, and, and I've been there myself, that is going through a process of belief um, called deconstruction, where you are finding things that you never had to think about when you were a child, and you inherited your parents' faith, and now you're growing up, and science is telling you things that you never heard, and sociology is telling things you never heard, psychology is telling you things you never heard, and history is revealing things to you that you never heard. And before, you had a couple of doubts, and, but you had a lot of faith, and lately your, your doubts have been rivaling your faith. And you're, you're carrying both, and it's getting a little heavy, and you're getting a little terrified. I'm glad you're here. A lot of us have been through this. A lot of us are here now. Um, we, a, a lot of people today, a lot of people are deconstructing their faith and they're tearing it down and they're, and they want, they're inspecting it and looking at it and saying, where did all of this come from? How did we get here? And what do I do with this? Now, eventually at some point you have to build something up. You come to a baseline and you say, well, this is what I believe in. And from here you start building again. Uh, deconstruction is a very important time in the life of a Christian. Your parents did it in their 20s and 30s. Their parents did it in their 20s and 30s. And here you are, maybe in your 20s and 30s, and you're a little scared, and it's okay. It's good. It's healthy. This is how um, Christian movements are born. Every generation has to sort of come to grips with who God is. And they can't hold on to what they've inherited forever. And so here you are, and you're scared. Now, um, For Peter, 
The conviction is the words of Jesus, the things that Jesus taught, are true. Now, I've heard people say a lot of things about Jesus. I've heard people say, well, he didn't rise from the dead. He, he's not, he, you know, they, I, they don't believe in his deity, all kinds of things about Jesus. But I rarely hear people, really, really um, credible scholars, I rarely hear them ever say, well, Jesus was wrong. People really don't say Jesus was wrong about the things that he says and teaches. They just have a problem with some of the theological terms of it. And so here's the thing. Um, to that, I would say, who are all those people that gathered to hear Jesus speak on the mount, when, at the Sermon on the Mount? Did they, did they know Jesus was God? No. Had they seen miracles? Probably not. Maybe a few of them. Um, why did they gather? Because of his teachings. Because the things that he was saying were life-giving, and they were offering this hope that they had never heard, and if they were applied in this world, it absolutely changes everything. The idea that God has grace for you, that you didn't earn his love, that he just showers it upon you, and that you should in turn respond by giving grace to people who don't deserve it in your life, and, and grace and mercy and forgiveness and, and, and helping those who, who, who are less fortunate than you and giving yourselves and pouring yourself out for these people. This message is incredible. And as they spent time with him, they started to realize and there's some deity at play here too. And the miracle started coming real. It started doing this incredible thing. So, so for Peter, your faith starts at the teachings of Christ. That's where it starts. It doesn't start with proving there's a God and deity. It doesn't start with any of that. It starts with the teachings of Jesus. What was he saying? What did it mean? And is it true? I would argue absolutely. Now, um, from here... Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith. The fact that you, you have read the words of Jesus, you've heard them, you found them uh, to be true. You believe that they are true. The things he was saying are the right way to live. And you are gonna, you're going you're gonna to order your life around these things that Jesus taught. Supplement that with something called virtue. Now, virtue is the English sort of uh, word that, that we use to translate the word that is there. The word that is actually there is this word erite. Everyone say, erite. Great, we're awake. It means the supreme good in all things. Now, it's a very rare word in the New Testament. Paul only uses it one time. Um, Peter, I believe, only used it one time. Um, from what I can see, it's in the scriptures two times, um, and that's it, because it's a very interesting word, and we don't really have a good English equivalent of it. Here, it's translated virtue. When Paul used it, um, he used it in, I believe it was Philippians, where he says, um, if there's any excellence, think on these things. And the word excellence is how it's translated. Irritate becomes the word excellence. So excellence, virtue. But it basically means the supreme good in all things. And, and here's how this would play out in normal conversation in the first century. If, land, if you were talking about land, and you said that land was erite, that means it was fertile, beautiful, and the best land you could imagine having. If you were to talk about livestock and say this livestock is erite, it's, it's beautiful, it's, it's plump and juicy and lots of meat, and it's going to last forever, it's going to be great. You're talking about really good meat. Um, sorry, or veggies, sorry, some of you. <laughs> Leave nobody out, that's what I say. Um, if you're talking about an, a piece of music and you say that music is erite, is it, is it, it is an exquisite piece of music. It is beautiful. It's complex. It makes you feel. It's incredible music. Um, Paul used actually erite to describe um, 
the people who were coming from other religions, and he said, focus on the things that are excellent. In other words, um, the things that are in your old religion or in any religion, the things that are really good, the things that are erite, the best things that, that this type of thinking can do and this type of thinking can do and this type of thinking can do. Focus on the best possible things and hold on to those. And that should be how you see these things, which is really fascinating. So the way he describes your faith You're going to trust in Jesus. You're going to revolve your life around this. And then he says, and add that to that, add erite. The teachings of Christ, the things that Christianity is, that are the best possible versions of Christianity. The best possible representation of what this can do in this world. And there's lots and lots of ways that you can talk about this. Lots of things that you can say that, that, that Christians have done for the world, that the followers of Jesus have done for this world. Christians have charged into places that are just ridden with disease and death and charged in and planted hospitals. They've gone into war zones to act as human shields and to take care of the orphans whose parents have been killed in these wars. Um, We work with people right now who are planting churches in Syria. Um, We are partnering with the Kurdish people um, there who don't have a nation, don't have any representation, and who have been treated unjustly for centuries. Christians do and have done throughout throughout, throughout centuries amazing things. Um... Christians under William Wilberforce abolished the slave trade. They worked very hard at the expense of their own life and, 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 and finances to free the slaves. Um, the followers of, of Jesus have, have um, fought for civil rights in the 60s. Martin Luther King. We've done, they've done amazing things throughout history. Now, when you start talking like this, you're always going to have that person who's going to say, yes, but... But what about this, and this, and this, and this? These black eyes that Christians have because of the ways people have selfishly taken the simple message of grace and turned it into some political, massive, empirical thing. And they've turned it into warmongering and oppression and televangelism and bigotry and crusading and the... the, the the prosperity gospel, um, extorting money from poor people to buy jetliners. Um, Christians have done terrible things with the simple message of Jesus. And you're always going to have that person pointing it out. Um, and you know what? They always have. And no one's better at this than ourselves. Christians today spend a lot of time shooting at the church. And sometimes rightfully so. But it is not new. It has not gone south now. It is, it is since the day human beings became the church, there has always been a difficulty in the church of people using it the wrong way. Augustine actually wrote about this once. Um, and he said, let us honor her. He's talking about the church. Let us honor her because she is the bride of so great a Lord. And what am I to say? Great and unheard of is the bridegroom's gracious generosity. He found her a whore and he made her a virgin. What he's basically saying is people spend a lot of time talking about the unfaithfulness of the church, talking about um, the flaws in the church. But you know what? God married her anyway. And you know what? People rarely talk about the gracious generosity with which she has worked in this world. And so Peter says, you're going to take your faith 
You're going to revolve your life around the simple teachings of Jesus. To that, you're going to add the best possible version of Christianity that you can think of. And you are going to do that. And you're going to apply that. There is no reason to take part in the cynicism in the church. There is no reason to stand around shooting at the church like that. Just be different. I heard someone today, I think they were, I think they were quoting Spurgeon. They said, they said, go into your house, take chalk, draw a circle on the ground, and stand in that circle, and cry out to God and pray for revival in that circle. <laughs> I love that. Um, and so, let's see, what else? Do I have anything else here? No, I think it's good for that. Let's go to the next one. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, man. I saw this. I had to put this up here. There is a lot. Oh, man. Christianity has been part of some of the greatest movements in history. Anyways, next. Uh, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Now, last week, I introduced a word for knowledge. Anyone remember that word? Epignosis. Thank you. Gold star for you. And... Detention for the rest of you. Now, um, this is not that word. I said there's two definitions for knowledge. There's epigenosis, which is knowledge that comes about by doing, by taking part in. What we have here is the word gnosis. Uh, it means practical knowledge. Um, it's book knowledge. It's studying. So the first kind of knowledge you really need is taking part in something. And the second kind of knowledge you really need is now that you get it, now you understand the life-giving source it can be. Now you need to study and understand it. What exactly is happening? How can I do this better? Now, one of my favorite theologians, William Barclay, defines gnosis like this. Gnosis is that knowledge which enables people to decide to take the right course and to act honorably and efficiently in the day-to-day -day circumstances of life. It's very simple. It's very practical. Um, it is um, the ability to, to see, okay, so this does good. These things, the, the gospel does a lot of really, a lot of good in the world. So I want to study and understand this. I want to do more. Now, a lot of people study for the wrong reason. Um, books oftentimes become a bit of a curse to some people um, because they play on their pride and they read and they study. They become very well educated and they get a lot of letters behind their name and then they start quoting things that are fancy and they're... they're they're lofty, they're very lofty things, and they want to quote them um, to impress people, to prove whatever. Um, but when you start with faith, the gift of faith, it was a gift to you. When you start with that, and you think, what is the best possible thing Christianity can do for this world? And you take part in that, and you make that your, your striving. And then you start studying. It changes what you do. It changes how you study. It changes your reasons for studying. Your, your psychology books, if you're a psychology, your psychology books become these really, really good fountains of understanding the human mind so that you can pull the absolute best out of people. Whatever you're reading, you use that, um, that knowledge that you have gained to do good, to do really good things. Um, your history books, if you're a history buff, they become warnings of of where humanity can go wrong and how to keep things centered on love and redemption. And so they become really, really 
good and helpful. Your philosophy books, if you're a philosophy guy, they, 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 they become these cave diving expeditions into the human mind to understand the teachings of Christ um, and how the teachings of Christ when applied can help build societies where people are actually taking part in creation and recreation. And it, and it helps human thinking about the world around you be very healthy. And so these things all become tools to, to, that drive arete. I mean, you can read all of these things. I, I had a friend who, um, I think I've told you this before, I had a friend who was, um, he had a PhD in, in philosophy, I believe it was from Duke, and, and he had to sign a waiver at, at the PhD level saying that if he committed suicide in his philosophy, during his philosophy classes that, that the school wasn't responsible because this happened several times. Apparently it was regular enough to where people had to sign a waiver to take philosophy classes. So you can, there's, there's two ways you can take anything. Um, if you're into beautiful literature, novels, classics, things like this, um, dramas, Shakespearean dramas and plays, if you're into um, just really beautiful literature and poetry, um, when you are seeking the absolute best that Christianity can bring into this world, those things become these, these uh, sort of, they can become these worship experiences where you say, God, you are so creative and you do beautiful things, and you created these beautiful people to do these amazing things. Thank you. And you start to see how every story is this sort of story about Jesus. Every story has sort of this hero who sacrifices everything for the person that he loves, who pours himself out. And and you come to see that this is actually the story of humanity. This is what this is all about. And you start worshiping God, and, and you read differently. When, when you open up the scriptures, you're no longer trying to solidify, here's, um, here's how I can best argue my theological position. You throw that away, and you say, how can I best mold myself to be a, a person who is the most Christ-like? You read for a different reason. And so he says, you take your faith, and you add to it the idea that, that there is this beautiful thing that Christianity can do. And then, and then you start studying and diving into this thing with a shovel, and you start just digging it all out. Now, um, there's something at the very beginning that I saved for last because it's, it's a really, really important thing. And um, it's sort of how he describes you should put these things on. It's the word supplement. He says, um, for this very reason, because Jesus is offering everything that has to do with life and godliness... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So supplement is not, it's some of your versions, if you're reading, might say equip. Um, And it's these words, these English words we have are a little misleading. To really understand this word, we have to understand um, uh, the Greek word epikorogain. Everyone say epikorogain. Well done. In order to understand that word, you have to understand this guy. Um, Looks like Will Ferrell from... (laughs) There was a Saturday Night Live skit where he used to talk about, let's fill our bellies with yams and kiss by the fire. Eat gra- He's got grapes, see? Um, and uh, so this guy, um, this is, the, this is the, the ancient Greek mythological god of the harvest. His name was Dionysus. He had his own city called Dionysius. Um, and um, every year there would be this massive festival to this guy. Now, there was, I was going to put up, there's lots of ancient Roman sort of reliefs like carvings, stone carvings of what this festival looked like and ancient mosaics and paintings. I couldn't put any of them up on the screen um, because they are a little raunchy um, because it was a terrible pagan festival. Um, they're worshiping the, the god of harvest and so um, they would do all kinds of public sex acts basically to get the attention of the god of harvest. 
Um, and so every year there would be these festivals, and they would last about a week. Um, and he had his own theater. It, would, it, was, it was this. This was basically a, a drawing of what it looked like back then. Um, and there would be all of these plays that would be done. There would be songs that would be sung by choirs. There would be orchestras playing things and dances. And it would go on for about a week, and it would spread into the city. Um, people would worship in all kinds of crazy ways. Um, uh, one thing that I read is that the people would gorge and gorge themselves on raw meat and drink wine and, until they threw up. And then they would do it again and throw up and then do it again and throw up until they were hallucinating. And then they would watch these plays just tripping out of their minds. Um, and it was just this really awful, terrible, just, just week of filth. Now, um, the, the city uh, and the Empire of Rome didn't pay for these festivals. And someone had to. And so the rich people, the philanthropists of the city, would dig deep into their pockets and they would pull out tons of money to hire all of the musicians and the actors and the dancers and everything. And, and they would pay all of these people um, to put on these plays and sing these songs. Now... You know what they called the, the people who gave and who paid this? They called them Corrigan. Um, this is where we get our word, Epicorrigan. And so they were basically people who sacrificed a lot for these things to happen. They dug really deep. They wanted these things to happen so bad. They wanted it to be so beautiful and so amazing that they gave till it hurt. So Peter's basically saying is, by the way, here it is today. It's still there. And they still do some of the ritual things, not quite like they did. Um, and so Peter is saying, imagine your faith is a festival. And it's going to be, it's going to be the festival that you plan and that you pay for. And um, some people, uh, they just give a little they kind of have this faith and they kind of hold on to it and it's like, it's so-so, it's there. And then you see these other people who are just, their faith is, it's amazing. And it's deep. And it, 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 it like is life-giving. And, and they, their whole life flows from this, this interaction and this relationship and this faith and this belief that they have in God and what he wants for them and the world around them. And he says, this is up to you. Equip your faith. Dig deep into your pockets. And, and how bad do you want it? How much are you willing to give? What in your life are you willing to cut off and put away with? What are, are you willing to sacrifice until it hurts to gain these things? Because the steps are simple, but it's going to be a little painful. It's going to be a stretch. It's going to be a trial. It's going to be hard. How bad do you want this? And I love that he uses this word. He says, if your life was a festival, I mean, I know a lot of people that they kind of held on to their faith and one day they lost it because it was just not, it wasn't this alive thing. They were just there. They were holding on to it. Yeah, I believe that. And they were just compromised at any time. And they were becoming more and more separated from it. And I have a lot of friends who are now atheists, lots, um, because they just didn't really want it that bad. It, a lot of it has to come down with, with what you want. Because Jesus has offered, again, everything that has to do with 
life and in godliness. The, the things that he's offering. You have things in your life right now that you look at and you say, well, this, this part of me is not healthy. This is unhealthy. I do this too much. I don't do this enough. I'm, I'm completely ignoring this part of my life. I just, I'm not fulfilled and right here or here or here or here. And you can point and pick out all of the things that you need to get rid of to make those things healthy again. And Peter says, the steps are very easy, but there's some giving you have to do. There's some, there's some sacrifice you have to make. And so here we are today. Um, it's simple. It's, it's a ladder. It's not complicated. And there's a few more steps. We're going to open those up next week. But this week I want to focus on this. Um, maybe you're here and you have, you're, maybe you're in a phase of deconstruction. I'm glad you're here. I want to help. Um, we would love to have these conversations with you. I've been there. I've had intense doubts. I've had to come to grips with some things that I, that I used to hold to that I just no longer do. And it's changed how, how things work in my mind, in my relationship with God. And we, we want to be an open, honest community where people are honest and just can say, hey, I have serious thoughts about this and this and this and this. And we talk about it. And in the end, we stand up and say, hey, the broken body of Christ, the spilled blood of Christ, intense, um, unfailing love poured out healed me and can do that for those around us. And so there are things that we hold to, that we believe to, that, that, that we believe can fix things. And so we're going to take communion. Um, so our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and, and take the elements and, uh, and get ready. Um, maybe today as we're taking communion, we should, we should ask God to reveal to us the things that we need to give, that we need to dig deep, and we need to give up. We need to cut out of our life. We need to commit to. We need to give up. Um, if your life was a festival, if your spiritual, your faith was a festival, like would it? Would people even notice? Would people even want to come? Would people even want to just celebrate with you? I think a lot of us kind of sometimes feel like, no, it's just, it's just this trudging sort of marching band. It's just sad. It doesn't have to be. The story of resurrection, the thing that we believe as Christians is that tomorrow doesn't have to be like it is today. The things can be different. Things can change. Tomorrow's a new day and life can come from utter death. And so sometimes when you feel like your faith is dead and you're walking to the tomb of Jesus and you've got spices in your hands and you feel like Jesus is dead, sometimes that's when the miracle happens, right? That's when resurrection happens. That's when it all becomes real to you. So we're going to spend some time in prayer. And uh, let's pray for these things, shall we? Our communion servers, you guys can go on forward. Um, there's two elements. There's the bread. The, it represents the body of Christ broken for you. There's the wine. It represents the blood of Christ spilled for you. We take a piece. We dip it in the, in the wine, and we, we, we eat it. There's nothing mythical that happens, nothing. It doesn't turn into anything. It's just... Communion, uh, the root word there is common. They're common things that, that we see Christ in. And our hope is that as we practice this, that more and more throughout our life, we will see Christ in common things. And we will take part in it. So, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the ways that you are growing us and changing us. Um, make us humble. Make us study for the right reasons. Give us a passion to know you. Give us a passion for the, for the good that you can bring into this world. Help us to be less cynical. 
Help us to, to shoot at your bride far less than we do and hopefully not at all. Instead, let us be what we hope to see. Make our faith real. Make it alive. May we build off of faith and, 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 and find the absolute best things that Christianity has, Christianity has to offer. And, and then may we, on top of that, strive to deeply study and understand it. Give us a passion for learning about you.